I went to that river at key points in my life. It's like uh, heartbreak or, or happiness. Milestones, I guess you'd say. That's Todd Rice, everyone. He's a multi-talented guy, a composer, performer, speaker, coach, educator, and that's just to name a few things. To Todd, the East River has been a place of inspiration, mischievous adventures, and I can relate to this one, a place to enjoy a good bagel and a cup of tea. Every spring, like one of the first few spring days, I would walk over to watch the sunrise. So I'd sit on like 57th Sutton Place, there's this little alcove, and I would buy a bagel and a tea and sit there and watch the sunrise. I'm Kathy Boyle Almeida, and this is Adrift NYC, a podcast about the waterways that touch the shores of New York City. As you've certainly guessed by now, today's episode is about the East River. For those of you who aren't familiar with New York, the East River separates Manhattan Island from the boroughs of Queens and Brooklyn. The river runs along the east side of Manhattan Island and the western shores of Queens and Brooklyn. Like Todd, this river means many things to me. It's a place I go to slow down and escape from the hectic pace of the city. But it's also a place I go to pick up speed sometimes with a brisk walk along the river's promenade. It's also been one of my commuter routes when I've opted to take the ferry downtown rather than the subway. And for the first time back in 2012, when Superstorm Sandy hit the city, the river was for the first time, at least to me, a threat. It flowed over its banks and down the street where I live, which I had never seen before. In this episode, like every episode, you're going to hear different points of view, a historic point of view, a marine scientific point of view, and an artistic point of view on this waterway. Oh, and I have some really cool Adrift NYC news to share with all of you at the end of the episode. First, let's take a step back in time and hear what the East River was like in the early 1800s. Swimming was actually a a popular activity. That's Terry Daly, the director of the Mount Vernon Hotel and Garden, which is located near the shore of the East River. More specifically, it's on East 61st Street on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. The hotel is a museum today, but it was an incredibly popular country resort back in the 1800s. There were some protected alcoves in the East River where you could swim in. You know, I always wondered if people swam in the East River, and now I know they did thanks to those little alcoves that must have protected swimmers from the crazy fast currents that I see every day when I stand on the river's shore. Funny enough, those currents were an important deterrent for those prisoners that were housed just across the river on Blackwell's Island, who might have had some thoughts about trying to escape. The Blackwell's Island Terry just mentioned, you all would know it today as Roosevelt Island. And in the 1830s, there was a prison there that housed nearly a 1,000 inmates. The current in the East River and boats that controlled the shores kept most of the prisoners from attempting to escape by swimming across the river. Now, the idea that the river itself prevented prisoners from escaping piqued my curiosity. So I did a little Googling and came across a website for New York Correction History Society. On that site, I found some really cool information. I found out that few of the inmates of the prison did actually escape, despite the currents in the East River and the guard boats that patrolled the waters. Now, those few that eventually made it across the river to Manhattan may have been quite surprised to come across sea turtles in the water along the shores of Manhattan. Yeah, you heard it right, sea turtles. So the sea turtles would be imported from the Caribbean into New York City port, 
and then places like the Mount Vernon Hotel would store them in pens in the East River until it was time to prepare them and add them to their menus for the day. Now, I'm not a turtle soup fan, but I was fascinated at the different roles the East River played in people's lives back in the 1800s. And it actually served as one of the most popular routes for guests to get to the Mount Vernon Hotel. Our building functioned as a day hotel, which essentially was a country resort for middle-class New Yorkers who lived south of 14th Street. And they would travel up here to the hotel by stagecoach up the Old Post Road or by ferry up the East River to the private dock on 61st Street. And guests would come up and enjoy food and drink and entertainment and, of course, lots of leisure activities on the water. Guests would enjoy sailboating and fishing and swimming. The Lenape had a special place just to the north of the hotel location that was good for fishing. And fishing remained a really popular activity for men who visited the hotel in the early 19th century. Now, aside from there being a lot of recreational boats on the water, ferries were also abundant back then, which is not all that different from today. But Terry painted a really great picture of how different the view would have been from the deck of one of those ferries compared to what it is today. Taking a ferry or a steamboat from downtown up to the hotel along the East River would have been an experience in terms of the landscape, very different from one end of the river to the other. So in the southern end of Manhattan, you would find lots of slips for ships and boats, and it was also quite built up. So then as you travel a little further north between Catherine and Market Streets, I noticed on an 1828 map that there was a lumber yard and an oil and candle manufactory. So you're starting to see some industry along there. And then from that point north up to 14th Street, there were just lots and lots of shipyards and dry docks. But after that point, all the way up to the Mount Vernon Hotel, it is mostly private estates, countryside, some farms. The only exception to that was the Bellevue Complex, which was along the waterfront, pretty much in the neighborhood of Bellevue Hospital today. And there, there was a, a hospital, an almshouse, and a penitentiary, and a house of refuge all in that complex. So that would be the, the one thing that wasn't greenery or countryside as you were traveling north up the East River to the hotel's neighborhood. It's really hard for me to imagine the east side of Manhattan with so much greenery and sprawling estates. What was even harder for me to imagine was how cheap some of these ferry rides and boat excursions were back then. Now, I know wages were equally as low, but when I heard the fares that Terry told me people were paying, it still just blew my mind. You could go from downtown New York to Staten Island or Coney Island or even north to the Sing Sing prison for 12 and a half cents each way. And then for a little bit more, you could have the East River excursion to Clark's Hotel in Throg's Neck. And it was quoted as leaving Liberty Street at 9 a.m. and returning in the afternoon. And this would cost you 25 cents each way. Can you imagine that? 25 cents. I can't think of much that I can get for 25 cents today. 
Now, Terry, if people want to learn more about the museum or visit, where should they go? Please go to our website at mvhm.org. In case any of you didn't catch that URL, don't worry. I'll put a link to the museum in the show notes for you. Terry, thank you so much for opening our eyes to how important the East River was to New Yorkers back in the 1800s. Thank you so much. Next up, we're going to hear a different perspective. We're going to talk about the East River as a force of nature and what scientists are doing to keep it healthy and keep us safe when storms make the East River waters surge far beyond the shoreline. One of the things I love about doing this podcast is the amazing people I get to meet. And I want to take a second now just to say how appreciative I am for how many of my guests have been open to me, reaching out to them out of the blue, and then sharing their time with me. My next guest in particular is incredibly busy, and he carved out time out of his research and his travel schedule to chat with me about the East River. You're about to meet Professor Malcolm Bowman, who is a distinguished professor of physical oceanography at the School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences at Stony Brook University. Hi, Malcolm. It's great to talk to you, and thank you for joining us. Good afternoon. You're welcome. Uh, Could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? I study the properties of the oceans around New York Harbor, New York City, the Long Island Sound, and the ocean, particularly the last few years I've been studying storm surges. To start out very basic, I was wondering if you could tell me, is the East River truly a river, or is it some other type of marine environment? East River is not really a river where we think of fresh water flowing from uh, the mountains down to the ocean. It's really called a tidal strait, and it connects uh, western Long Island Sound to New York Harbor. Basically, the water flows back and forth every 12-hour tidal period, and depending on whether Long Island Sound is higher than the harbor or vice versa. So waters go back and forth, sloshing back and forth twice a day. Is there anything particularly interesting about the East River or problematic about the East River in terms of your storm surge work that you're doing? Oh, yes, you've touched on a very important point because most people don't know this, but during Sandy, the area was hit by not one but two storm surges, one coming up through the Verrazano Narrows from the ocean. But there was a second storm surge that came uh, barreling down Long Island Sound and propagated or flowed through the East River. And these two surges, the Verrazano surge, let's call it, and the East River surge met in the lower East River. And that's where a lot of the flooding occurred and a lot of the damage occurred. So that surge at the upper end of East River called Throg's Neck was actually higher surge than the one that uh, hit the city harbor. But because the tides are different times, the tide was falling in, in the Western Sound, so the surge, which sits on top of the tide, didn't do as much damage as it done. Knowing that these storms happen, and now having seen the damage that can be done, I, I think the average New Yorker worries about them. Um, from, from the work that you're doing, is there anything that can be done to help prevent that level of flooding in the future? My research group called the uh, Metropolitan New York, New Jersey, Long Island Storm Surge Working Group, we've been looking at um, the use, the construction and operation of what we call storm surge barriers based on several European designs and also based on designs in New England. These barriers would keep out these occasional but devastating storm surges while at the same time during good weather would allow the normal free flow of the tides and maintaining the water quality. So 
we've done a lot of research on these barriers and uh, the Army Corps of Engineers, the U.S. Army, is currently evaluating various possibilities. And they will come out with a recommendation early next year about their recommendations of how the region could be saved. It's a very controversial study. There are many voices clamoring to be heard. At Stony Brook University here, our main priority is to do very high-quality research, both on the oceanography, the engineering, and the ecology of the region. Sounds like fascinating work. Well, yes, it's, um, it's not rocket science. It's good marine engineering. If you look at, for example, New Bedford, Massachusetts, they built a storm surge barrier there following the 1938 hurricane that devastated a lot of eastern Long Island and New England. It took many years to build it, but now it houses this uh, basically a fishing community, New Bedford, which was on the decline for many years, but now it is the most productive fishery port in the entire United States. And in a given winter, over 400 fishing boats are safely protected behind the barrier system they have there, which is closed when storms come. During Sandy, New Bedford... Providence, Rhode Island, and Stanford, Connecticut, each having small barrier systems, experience no flooding whatsoever. Just out of curiosity, is there like a top like argument to not do this? Well, there is concern by some environmental groups, and they are legitimate concerns, and a suspicion of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers about building large dam structures across these delicate ecosystems like the lower Hudson River. And at Stony Brook University here, we fully appreciate those concerns, but we feel it's important to base the analysis on the best science available, on the best ecology available, on the best oceanography available, and not rush to negative conclusions that this will be an environmental disaster, as some groups are professing, until the evidence is in. So obviously, this is a huge undertaking, but it has to be done in a responsible scientific manner. So politics aside, we do the best uh, research that is available. Is there anything about the East River that you feel like we haven't touched on, like about the marine environment there that you'd want to call out to listeners? There is a way of harnessing the, the power of the tides in the East River, this back and forth motion, by turning it into a one-way flow by having gates would be the storm surge barriers would have dual purpose and they would let the water flow from Long Island Sound for half the tidal cycle six hours and then but stop it coming back so it would be a bit like flushing the toilet that this pumping action from Long Island clean Long Island Sound water through the East River through the harbor out to the ocean would have dramatic effects on proving the water quality and this is all separate from the storm surge aspects but they could be constructed for dual purpose so we're hoping that the Army Corps will consider this, um, this novel aspect in addition to the storm surge function, which would, would provide a dramatic improvement of water quality as well as protecting the region from future storms. If I understand it correctly, you're basically just creating a one-way flow rather than the pollution or the contaminants pushing back into the, the sound. They would just flow straight out into the broader harbor and ocean. Is that right? That is correct. If anyone is interested in your work or following more of what we talked about that you're studying or the projects you're working on, is there any way that they can follow you or is there a website they should look for? Yes, if they go to the Stony Brook University website, 
officially known as the State University of New York at Stony Brook, and then look for the School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences. You will find me. Well, thank you so much, Malcolm. I really appreciate you taking the time and describing all the fascinating work that you are working on. So thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. At this point in the podcast, I'd typically play you a little more of our Adrift NYC theme song, but I'm going to break tradition today to play you a composition that was created by Todd Rice. You all know Todd. You heard him at the start of the episode. The East River holds a really special place in Todd's heart, and when I spoke with him about participating in this podcast, he was really excited by the idea and the challenge of taking inspiration from the East River to create something. And that's all I asked him to do, create something. And I think you're going to love the something that he created. Let's take a listen. Wow. It's beautiful, right? I find this composition so mesmerizing and so relaxing. But what's kind of funny is that after Todd played it for me, I certainly wasn't relaxed with my first question. 
For some reason, I needed to know what he was going to title it. I didn't even give the poor guy a chance to talk about his process or his background. I just needed to know what name he was giving it. So, Todd, I, I want to ask you, why did you name it what you did? Or what is your working title? The working title is Aquatic Lovers, and it's a double entendre. And you might wonder, I mean, why such a long, slow piece of music, right? And that's because, as far as humans are concerned, this East River is eternal. It's like as old as how, I don't know how old it is, but it's got to be, you know, a long time. And so instead of trying to capture the physical essence of the river, I was going for the character and then infused with what it means to me. And maybe I'm generalizing for people in general. Lovers, because I also went to that river at key points in my life. You'll hear that there's this slow idea of this very slow unfolding, right? Which is the river in its eternal form, just this idea of this mighty, un- immeasurable, so it has to be broad. And then there are these little boo, because I used to throw little rocks in the water. And I'd love to listen to the plop, you know. And then, you know, you see the rock go down slowly. And that's and each time it goes down another level. Like it, the first plop, it goes down, and then you hear the And that's a deeper level of the river. And then it goes down again. And then we hear this kind of romantic theme where the piano comes in. And that, to me, um, emblematically, or you know, is, is basically the human response to the river or, or the river's heart, if you want to think of it that way. And how long, because you and I met at the river, and mm-hmm. I, obviously you have been to the river many times, as you said, in milestones in your life. When we met, just to introduce each other, and then you were experiencing the river that day, what is your next step from there? Like, you obviously had knowledge, and then a recent experience. How did you get to developing then this piece? Interestingly enough, the origin of that piece is actually a couple of years ago. Oh, Okay. The beginning of it. But then I, I thought of it because it was the East. I actually, that piece was written at the East River. So I went and revisited it. And I said, you know, I never recorded this thing. Uh-huh. Let's, and then I started to formulate how I wanted it to be. I, that You know that piano theme at the end? That I had written. Oh, okay. All right, good. But I knew that that had to be part of, you know, that was part of the East River thing. Because I had written that as, as a water theme. It came to me after you and I had, after we had our wonderful day visiting the river. And I said, wait a second, you know, because I started to think about what I would write. And I said, wait a second, I, I feel something incomplete here. And I went back and said, yeah, that that's the piece that belongs here. So I didn't feel like it was cheating to, <laughs> to revisit. But I don't think that was cheating. <laughs> and so I remember you listening to certain, like you were actually recording some of the water that day. Do you do that as just a reminder to yourself? Or what's the purpose of that? Sometimes it's just fun to play the sounds and but the, the river sounds were particularly good because when a, vi- a vessel would pass by, the waves come toward us, and then they crashed, in our case, underneath where we were standing, underneath that, that little platform. And that's why I wanted to record that, you know, because they were they're just different. And it's, it's amazing to me the impact that a simple vessel could have with those waves coming by. It was like silent because we were there pretty early, not like crack of dawn early, but early in the morning. And it was pretty quiet until a boat went by and then you would hear all the waves. And it it does. It's nice. I also have to say, listening to the song, there was a few places because that morning, if you remember, there was a little bird that kept coming over and there were parts of listening to your music. I'm like, oh, that's making me think of that little bird (laughs) that came over. (laughs) That bird was really cool. Yeah. Coming over to say hello. I know. Did you think of that bird at all or is that just 
just my interpretation of the of well, that's the song. Why, that's why I like letting people listen to the piece yeah. and experiencing their own experience. Because yeah. as a composer, I I just like to take an inspire. I have an inspiration for me personally. It starts as a feeling. Then I get like um, a visual that connects to it, and it's it could be very very abstract. It's usually not a concrete visual. I mean, I did have the visual of the river that day because I kept playing that, but. And then it becomes sound last. So the bird part, although no, to answer your question, no, I wasn't consciously thinking of the bird. But the bird part was the 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 life element, the the animate and inanimate. The the river is kind of inanimate, but but alive in a, in a sense. And that's that long drawn out sounds that we hear. That's like the river, because it's constantly moving. It's constantly new, even though it's always eternally the same, which just blows my mind. I love that. I love it. And right. to think that the all these bodies of water have seen like mankind change mm-hmm. so much and like they're consistent. So Todd, I do want to ask you about your work and where people, I mean, once they hear this music, they might really be, I have to know more about this man. So can you tell me where people could find your work? I have a website, creative-breakthroughs, spelled out, dot com. And uh, yeah, if people want to check out my music, and I hope you feel like going to iTunes and uh, you can hear it for samples, of course, for free. And then if you want to support the arts, just hit the download button. And iTunes, I I have two uh, instrumental albums out there. One is called It's Just a Thought, and the other is Can You Hear Me Now? Well, I'll put links in the show notes, definitely to your site. And if I can put little instructions for people in the show notes, I definitely will. Thanks for having me. Okay, dear listeners, before I let you go today, I have some exciting Adrift NYC news. First of all, Adrift NYC is now officially available on Spotify. So if you know anyone that's a big Spotify user, please tell them to search for Adrift NYC and start listening. The second bit of news is that I've heard that some of you Adrifters, yep, I've officially coined a term for you, you Adrifters, I've heard that you've been meeting up and exploring New York City together. I absolutely love that. In fact, it's inspired me to think of ways of getting more of us adrifters together in person. I'll have more to come on that in the new year. The third bit of news is something you may have already noticed. The cadence with which I'm publishing episodes has slowed down. And until January, you may not see a lot of new episodes coming out. And that's simply because it's peak season for my day job, and I need to devote extra hours there each day. But no fear, I'm still getting out on the waterways and pulling together great stuff for all of you. In a few weeks, things should get back to normal for my work hours again, and you'll start hearing from me more regularly. Until then, I hope you'll continue to tell your friends about Adrift NYC because, and this is the last bit of exciting news, this podcast, it's getting a five-star rating on iTunes. Seeing that makes me feel so good about what we're doing here and hopeful that this podcast is helping all of you appreciate the waters around us. Thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone that has rated us and posted comments on iTunes. I love reading those comments, so please keep them coming. Tell me what you like, what you like to hear more of, less of, or just your own thoughts about the waterways. I'd love to hear it all. Oh, and please subscribe to this podcast through your favorite podcast listening app. It's free, and subscribing really helps other people discover the show. Speaking of other people, if later today someone asks you what you've been up to, tell them that you've been listening to Adrift NYC, and please tell them to check it out. Word of mouth is the best way that podcasts get discovered. 
I want to thank Terry Daly, Malcolm Bowman, and Todd Rice for taking time to speak with me. And thanks, as always, to Mary Jean Stead for composing and performing our lovely theme song. If you would like to connect with me or other Adrifters, yep, using that official name, follow me on Instagram at AdriftNYC, or you can visit our website at AdriftNYC.com. If you sign up for the email alerts, we'll shoot you a quick email when a new episode comes out. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, make waves, everyone. from the Tsetse Project.